without further ado, I want to welcome up Anthony. I'm going to pray for the offering, and I'm going to pray for him, and we can get going on Could We Be Wrong. All right, Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. Thank you for this message. Um, I just pray for Pastor Anthony and his words, and just give him the words to say that we may receive them, and um, just give him wisdom. And Father, we bless this offering. Um, thank you so much for everybody's willingness to give. Just multiply tenfold, hundredfold, whatever is given. Just bless it and multiply it, Father. And bless this church in your name. Amen. Give it up for Pastor Anthony. Hello. How's everybody doing tonight? Excellent. So we are in the second message of a series called Could We Be Wrong, which is basically a basic apologetics kind of series where we're talking about questions that all Christians have eventually, right? It doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't matter if you went to a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church or a Reformed church. It doesn't matter. Eventually, you are going to have a moment where you think, do I really believe this stuff? Do I actually believe that 2,000 years ago there was a guy who was actually God who died and came back to life, and I have to believe in him to be saved? Do I really believe that? You're going to have to wrestle with that. You're going to have to open the Bible one day and look at it in English in 2019 and think, Word of God? Really? Do I really believe this? Am I confident? And those are good times. Someone say amen, please. Amen. Because then we get to bolster our faith and be encouraged if you have the courage to actually follow through with the question because there are some awesome answers. Last week, we took a break from this series and I got to do a one-off which I pretentiously named in Latin. Oh my gosh, who was here for that? So awesome. So yeah, I really enjoyed it, actually. And I think that message is actually very necessary for the church. So if you missed it and you actually care to hear it, you can hop online at newdaycommunity.org. Go to the Vine campus, and it's right there. But today, we are talking about Jesus. Could we be wrong about Jesus? How do we know, in other words... That Jesus was a real dude that actually existed and not just some myth or fairy tale. I was so irritated the first time somebody told me that Jesus was just my Christian myth, right? And I was I didn't know that this is just what universities do to people at the time. I was like, really just teach? Like, yeah, it's just a myth. Like, what do you mean by myth? And then he got this like snotty look on his face, He's like, oh, don't be offended. I'm like, don't be offended. Like, I believe in Jesus and he's God and stuff. Like, came back to life. He saved, I, I experienced him in worship and you're calling him a myth. Like, I don't know how to, how to deal with that. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of people think of Jesus this way, right? Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, a little boy was born in a manger called Jesus. You know? This is how you set up a fairy tale, right? This is a pretty standard beginning to set up a story that, when did it happen? Well, I'm not going to tell you when it happened. That's code for, it didn't really happen, right? And where did it happen? Well, it was, it was very far away. That's code for, it didn't really happen anywhere in any place, because this is a total fiction, right? And then from here, you introduce characters that the hearer or the reader would understand are also not real. Fairy tales can teach you cool lessons, right? But are they true in the sense of actually happening? Would you stake your life or your eternity on a fairy tale? And the answer is, heck no, right? Because the whole premise right off the, from the front is, this didn't really happen. I'm telling you a story. Do you know that nothing in the Bible about Jesus is written this way? 
It's written more like this. Last Tuesday night at Martini's, I... Dot, 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 dot. Now, what's the difference between this and once upon a time in a land far, far away? If I give you a date, right, last Tuesday, and I give you a place, Martini's, about 300 yards that way where the glory cloud is, where Grant works, amen. And if I say who was there and you know this person, it was me, you can check that out, right? We're going to discover that this is the way the Bible writes about Jesus. What I want to get at, guys, and we're going to start this way, and we're just going to build the case from there, is that Jesus was absolutely, absolutely, absolutely real. And almost no one argues with that. Even people that don't like Christianity. A lot of the sources that I'm going to read from are from a book called The Life of Jesus by a guy named John Dixon. Now, John Dixon was not raised a Christian. He's from Australia, which he calls a post-Christian society. I mean, they've had their Christian influence, and now they're all done with that. You know, so as a society, they are actively pulling away from their Christian roots. All right? He's a research fellow at, I think, Macquarie, Macquarie University. I don't know how to pronounce it. Certainly not with an Aussie accent. But he's like, look, man, you just don't meet scholars that want to argue about the existence of Jesus. You meet some bitter people that do, but not people that know what they're talking about. And he quotes a scholar named E.P. Sanders that says this, There are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, not just that he existed, but the things that happened in his life. When and where he lived, approximately when and where he died, and the sort of thing that he did during his public activity, that Jesus was born around 4 B.C., that he spent his childhood and early adult years in Nazareth, he was baptized by John the Baptist. He preached the kingdom of God, in quotes, because this guy probably isn't a Christian, doesn't even know what that means. He was executed on the orders of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. And this quote goes on. I didn't have space in one slide, and preachers love fitting it all on one slide, let me tell you. <laughs> but the point is, we have to start with this, they're just they're not historians. They're not New Testament scholars, Christian or not Christian. There are not scholars who study the historical Jesus who think there was no historical Jesus. This guy actually challenged his reader to say, go to the peer-reviewed journals and search for the articles that are questioning the existence of Jesus. He's like, you're not going to find them. The existence of Jesus is a given. And then he gives some ancient sources that back this up. You guys ready for some ancient sources that are not Christian to mention Jesus? Good, here we go. Writing about... 114 AD, we have a Roman historian named Tacitus. Anybody ever hear of this guy before? Sweet! I knew it! Awesome. <laughs> Justin. Oh, yeah, Nick, right on. Alright, here we go. This is Tacitus. He's, he's quoted in The Life of Jesus, which is another phenomenal book. He quotes him. Nero substituted as culprits, this is for the burning of Rome, and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder, and the, name, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the, of the procurator Pontius Pilatus, and the pernicious superstition was checked for the moment, only to break out once more. Does this guy like Christians? Was this guy probably a big fan of Jesus? No, but he was an excellent historian. And this is a thing that at least deserves some mention in passing. And so we have a Roman historian who doesn't like Christians verifying the existence of Jesus and even the fact that he was executed under Pilate. How about a Jewish historian? Are Jews Christians? No. 
and yet the Jewish historian Josephus, 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 sorry, Josephus, <laughs> mentions him twice. Here's one. And so he, the high priest Ananus, convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before, brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who is called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. We're going to come back to this, but here we have a reference to how James, the brother of Jesus, died. How many of you guys know it didn't go well for any of the disciples either? Not at all. But this guy's mentioning Jesus. He's even verifying that he was called the Christ. In passing, of course, but you know, he's a historian. He wants to throw in the interesting details. Here's a longer quote from Josephus. And I want to tell you right off the bat that some people, a lot of people, in fact, most historians, think that this quote contains things that were added later to make it seem more Christian. So bear that in mind. And then I'll kind of blow your mind after we read it. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. And after his crucifixion, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now you might say, okay, Anthony, but what part of that quote do scholars almost unanimously agree was added later to make it seem more Christian? None of it. I took those parts out. <laughs> this is the part that they almost unanimously agree was legit written by Josephus. Wow. And that's it. I just left out the other stuff. Is that pretty awesome? That's pretty great. So not just Roman historians, not just Jewish historians, but even philosophers. There was a Stoic philosopher named Serapion who wrote this. What did it avail the Jews to kill their wise king, since their kingdom was taken away from them from that time on? God justly avenged these three men. Socrates is not dead thanks to Plato, nor Pythagoras because of Herod's statue. Nor is the wise king because of the new law which he has given there's almost unanimous consent that this has got to be talking about Jesus. And to prove it, John Dixon quotes other secular scholars who have written about these three quotes. And they say this seals the deal as far as wondering whether or not Jesus actually existed. Here they are. I believe their names are Gerd. That's right. And Way. Gerd Thiessen and Annette Mertz. I'm sorry. I hope they're not bigger than me. The mentions of Jesus in ancient historians allay doubt about his historicity, especially those in Josephus, the letter of Serapion, and Tacitus, indicate that in antiquity, the, historic, the historicity of Jesus, I can do this, was taken for granted, listen to this, and rightly so. These are not Christians. The historicity of Jesus was taken for granted, and rightly so. All three know of the execution of Jesus. The execution was offensive for any worship of Jesus. And as a scandal, it could not have been invented. These are non-Christians. I am trying to tell you this is not a fairy tale. Jesus is real. Jesus really existed. And not only did he really exist, but there's wide agreement on the life he lived, the kind of stuff he did, and the way he died. Now, this is this way because the Bible places him in a specific time and place that can be verified, and in fact, it is. He's mentioned outside the Bible. Somebody say, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. I feel like we can almost stop there. 
<laughs> but we are not secular historians, are we? We are Christians. There's a bit of a leap between this guy really existed, really did some crazy, unexplainable stuff, and then died, and the Christian belief, which is, and he came back to, from the dead because that was his plan all along because he loved us. Amen? We're going to get there. Are the biblical sources reliable? Mostly what I mean by that is the Gospels and the book of Acts. How many people know that Acts is just the second part of Luke? Luke intended to write them both as one thing, right? He wrote them to the same guy named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is, but there's pretty good evidence that he may have been wealthy enough to pay for the writing of Luke's books or esteemed enough for Luke to want to write it for him for free. So Theophilus was a big deal. Okay, Gospels and Acts, can we trust them? Yes. The offering box is in the back. Thank you. For your <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're going to work it out. Here we go. We talked about this when we talked about can you believe the Bible? All of the Bible and the New Testament, it was all written before 180. Like, you have to find a really persnickety dude to want to argue that it happened later. There's super good evidence that all of it was written before 70 AD. Why might that be? Because something happened in 70 AD that was so amazingly horrible to the Jewish people that it was, it, it makes like the World Trade Center thing on 9-11 pale in comparison. It was the destruction of the temple. Rome just completely destroyed it. It was the end of a war that was absolutely horrible. I mean, if you read about it, it is just gut-wrenchingly awful. Like, you cannot imagine that people did the kind of stuff to people that the Romans did to those Jews. It was intensely horrible. No New Testament book mentions it, which is pretty strong evidence. It hadn't happened yet. These are super early. And when you write something that early, there are still eyewitnesses around who saw the stuff happen. And we have references to this all over the New Testament. They don't say once upon a time Jesus. They say you remember that guy you knew. Remember that dude we saw publicly executed, right? He didn't die in prison and the cameras were broken. Give me a break. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Like, okay. Moving on. Check this out. From Acts 4, 18 to 20. <laughs> I don't know if I should be sorry for that or not. I'm not. There we go. I just decided. All right. Focus here. We're back. Acts 4, 18 to 20. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What's going on? Peter and John are in trouble. They've been preaching Jesus as resurrected from the dead. The Jews were already mad enough at him, the Jewish leaders, to kill him. They thought they got rid of the problem. And now, can you believe it, that Peter and John had the audacity to say not only is he alive, but to confirm it with miracles. What a pain, right? So they call him into the principal's office, and they're like, you have to stop talking about this. And this is the response of Peter and John. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We were there. And there are other references where they tell these people, and you saw it too. But we have to move right along. Here's another one from 1 John 1, 1 1-2. John introduces the letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, that's Jesus, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He could not make it more strongly that I saw this for real, okay? 
Here's another one. It's kind of big, but this is such a key text. The Corinthians are messing up. If you've never read 1 Corinthians, you should, just to shake your head and feel good about yourself. But you also, for real. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. Paul is explaining to the Corinthians the basics of the faith. Okay? He says, What I received, I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Well, convenient. I mean, the inner circle. Of course, those are the guys that made it up, right? Of course He appeared to them. Oh no! After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then he adds this, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. This is Paul saying, check me out. I am telling you there were over 500 people that saw Jesus alive, and the vast majority of them are still alive. If you doubt what I'm telling you, go ask them. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And here's the coolest one, I think, because so far this is like Christian to Christian, kind of, right? I mean, aside from Peter and John, like being all like in the face of the Jewish leaders. In Acts chapter 23, Paul is having a dispute with the Jewish people. They put up such a fuss that Paul is arrested, okay? Eventually, the governor, Festus, has a visitor, and the visitor is King Agrippa, right? King Agrippa is the king of the whole region. He's being held captive in Caesarea, and Festus tells Agrippa, he's like, hey, you know, most honorable, whatever, bigwig King Agrippa, I got this dude who's really interesting, and I literally have no idea why he's been in custody this long. I have no idea what he did. Do you want to check him out? And King Agrippa says, yeah, I'll listen to this guy. But Paul recognizes that King Agrippa was around when this whole Jesus thing happened. And if you read in Acts chapter 26, he gets permission to speak freely, and dude, he does. He's like, what happened to me? Why am I here? I'm here because of Jesus. I was persecuting the church. Jesus was killed. He was raised from the dead. Paul even says, why do people think that's so weird? I love that. He's like, it's not weird that God can raise people from the dead. He's God. P.S. He appeared to me in a vision and told me that I need to spread the good news to the Gentiles, so that's what I've been doing, and that's why I'm here. Festus, the governor embarrassed in the presence of the king, interrupts Paul and says, oh, you're crazy, Paul. Oh, your great learning is driving you insane. And he's probably looking like he's got egg on his face, like he's been holding this crazy man, right? Paul says something very interesting to King Agrippa. Acts 26, 25 to 27. Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable, and the king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. And then he says to the king, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. He's not just saying, I saw it. He's saying, I know you saw it. Everybody saw it. He was publicly executed. He was appearing to all kinds of people after he was executed. And you know this happened. There were witnesses. Can we believe the biblical accounts? Well, I don't know what else you want. This is not written like a fairy tale. They literally say, check it out to the people that got the letters. Okay, moving on. Next, the Gospels and Luke and really all the New Testament, but specifically the Gospels and Acts, they are soberly and honestly written. What do I mean? I mean the writing is not crazy fantasy. If you look at some of these fake Gospels, 
I mean, one of them, I think it's the Gospel of Peter. Like, Jesus comes out of the tomb with angels, and they're, like, taller than heaven, and the cross comes out of the tomb after them and, like, talks. <laughs> you do not see the Gospels written that way. The Gospels are written like people who are honor-bound to accurately relate what actually happened. And part of them doing that and writing with this sober attitude is that they even include stuff that is embarrassing to them. If you're trying to make something up, okay, if you're trying, like, what are we going to spread around the ancient world? And we really want this to catch, like, wildfire, guys. We hope everybody reads this. Like, 2,000 years from now, we want people to find out that Jesus looked at me, the leader of the church, and said, get behind me, Satan. We really need that in there, guys. That just makes me look so good. Right? That's crazy. Mark 8, 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's not something you put in there if you're making something up. That's dumb. How about this? This is from Matthew 28, 16 to 18. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee. This is the very end, guys. Jesus has come back from the dead. He's appeared to the, to the disciples. He's touched their, you know, they touched his body. They go to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Really? Why do you put those words there if you're making it up? That's crazy. You don't put those in there if you're trying to make it up. But you do put that in there if you're trying to encourage people who are struggling with doubt. Come on, man. They write everything in the most sober, honest way they can. They make themselves look like fools. Have you read the Gospels and thought, what thick-headed people these are? Like, literally, who is this? They can command the wind and the waves. Like, like, my goodness. Guys, they're writing honestly. Next point, not only do they embarrass themselves, but they write some pretty embarrassing stuff about Jesus. And they include the sayings of Jesus that no one in their right mind would make up. Like, check this out from Luke 7, 37 to 38. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, this is kind of a mashup, stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and, and poured perfume on them. This was probably a prostitute who came into his dinner party. You write that about your boss, the savior of the world? Remember that one time when the, when the prostitute came off the street and was like kissing his feet and stuff? We gotta get that in there. That's crazy. Like, how about this? If you're making this up, do you write this from Luke 6, 53 to 55? Jesus is saying, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Which he says in the context of intentionally offending people. And then looks at his disciples and says, do you guys want to leave too? If you're making this up, do you put this in there? No! Is there an excellent theological explanation for this? Yes! But this isn't the kind of stuff you make up. It's way too difficult. We can trust the gospel accounts. Here's a quote that sums it up. Oh, no, this is the cool part. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. I like this message. The gospels and Luke, remember Luke and Acts are kind of one thing. They are factually correct. I don't have time to really go into this, but this is so cool to study. There's a historian named Colin Hemmer, and he identified 84 facts in only the last 16 chapters of Acts that have been confirmed by historical 
and archaeological research. This is when they're traveling around the world on their missionary journeys, right? Luke was quite the historian. Among these things that have been corroborated are the names of rulers of different regions. You know, we went to this weird island, and this was the name of the dude that was in charge. You know, and then we find out that that was actually the dude that was in charge. You know, local customs that he could not have known without either Google or going there. <laughs> they didn't have Google. They didn't have maps. The description of ancient sea travel is amazing, right? He knows the right way to get to where they're going because the right winds are blowing at the right season, and he knows the ports that they would stop in if there was a storm. Like, it's just amazing the things that have been verified. The locations of things and places and temples and altars and places of worship and stuff like that. That He did not have a computer, you know? He's an amazing historian. He went there. He was being honest. This helps corroborate Luke. And there's all kinds of stuff in the Gospels that are just factually correct and have been proven so. You know, for a long time, they were trying to say the Gospel was made up because there was no town of Nazareth. Until like the 50s, 1950s, when we found it. <laughs> you know? Awkward. <laughs> Jesus did miracles at the Pool of Shalom. Like, ah, oh, there is no Pool of Shalom. And you can think that until you're doing sewage works in Jerusalem and you find it. <laughs> you know? Like, they keep corroborating the Bible. It's historically accurate. It's soberly and honestly written. It is not a fairy tale. Jesus is real. He's real. What do you do with the fact that these look like credible historical sources? Here's another quote. This is from John Dixon directly. Historians do not privilege the New Testament texts, but they do not approach them with skeptical prejudice. The Gospels are treated like any other historical text of the first century. The fact is, mainstream experts overwhelmingly agree that the core of the Gospel narrative is historically sound. There is not argument about that. Unless you're extra persnickety. But even those people are on the far outskirts of scholarship. We can trust the Bible, guys. Is that good news? Yes. All right. But so far, we're just really good historians. How do we get to the Christian Jesus, the whole Jesus, the one that came for a reason, emptied himself, became a man, died for us, and rose for the forgiveness of sins? And to believe that is easier, I think, than believing it isn't the case. Why do I think it's easier to believe that Jesus, if he existed at all, was the Messiah, rather than just some anomaly of a human being? And I'll tell you, this is, this is the argument that convinces me. This is how the apostles died. Now, there's some variance in the church records, but just go ahead and, and survey this. I'll read some for you if it's too small. Bartholomew. Flayed to death by whips. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Simon, that's Peter. Or, no, excuse me, different guy. Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. Simon was crucified in Persia. James, beheaded in Palestine. Thomas, stabbed with a spear in India. Philip, hung by iron hooks upside down. Matthias, stoned and beheaded. Jude, crucified by the Magi in Persia. James, thrown off a wall and then clubbed to death. Matthew, impaled by spears in Ethiopia, and John gets off easily, dying in exile. We live in the day and age of TV preachers, the internet, fancy suits, and very white smiles, right? If I want to make up a scam version of Christianity and sell it, I can sell it, 
right? I have something to gain. These people did not. No, no one would make up Jesus. Not the Jesus who came to die for your sins, who came and accepted all that shame and then rose from the dead. That guy, no one is making up. And that is exactly the Jesus that all of these apostles died for. The New Testament authors had every earthly motivation to deny the resurrection rather than proclaim it. The last time we checked, the promise of submission, servitude, persecution, torture, and death would not motivate anyone to make up such a story. Do you know why I think there's about 2 billion Christians right now? Because Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Because what Paul said was passed on to him is accurate, right here from 1 Corinthians 15. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the only Jesus that could have endured through history. That's the only Jesus that really would have earned all those historical notes, right? That's the Jesus that would drive Tacitus crazy. Like, we hate these people. Why won't they go away? Why can't we check this superstition? Because he's real, man. And not only that, because he promises his Holy Spirit to live inside you, and he's empowering people to proclaim the message for 2,000 years, all the way around the world. That's why. Because it really happened. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter, who would eventually be crucified, upside down, according to church tradition, because he did not feel worthy be crucified right side up because that's the way Jesus died. He writes this, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories once upon a time, but we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's the conclusion you have to fight and claw to get away from. And man, these secular historians do. Some of the explanations you wouldn't believe. Like, maybe they're all hypnotized. <laughs> okay. Or maybe Jesus really lived, was executed, and rose from the dead. He was exactly who he claimed he was. How do you respond to that? Because the guy that was executed 2,000 years ago has echoed up to Michigan in 2019. And he stands before you now no less the Savior than he was then. If you are a Christian, live a worthy life. Be changed. Take it seriously. Have greater thankfulness for the grace of God. And if you are not a Christian, I would invite you to make that commitment today. Because the reason he came and went through all that stuff was for you. Yeah. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray. Can I pray with you? Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to make this short and sweet. You know what? If you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him as your Lord and Savior, if you believe he was exactly who he said he was because he proved it, then I just want you to raise your hand right now and say, I believe in Jesus' name. Lord, I want to be your child. I commit. I see all those hands. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, if, if you don't really want to raise your hand, but you want to pray a prayer of commitment, let's do that. Jesus, thank you so much for dying for me. Thank you for coming back to life for me. Count me in. Please forgive me for my sins, and I'm sorry. 
I want to follow you as my Lord and my Savior for the rest of my life. Please make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen.